Welcome to Tales from the Wavestone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, where we're taking a brief break from The Wise Man's Fear to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's newest release, The Narrow Road Between Desires. This expanded reimagining of the Bass-centric short story The Lightning Tree came out a couple months ago, back in November to be specific. This week, we're tackling the final third of the book, Moonrise Through Midnight. We hope you enjoy. As should be obvious, we are spoiling the end of this. Just going to say that once now, and then again in about a minute just so that you all are fully aware of that. So before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher dog books or Nate Taylor, though we have met him a couple of times at Comic-Cons. Also, we assume that you have read all of the stories to do with Quoth and Bast and the Four Corners and all of it. So if you haven't and you don't want spoilers, this might not be your podcast to listen to. But if you're all in, we're all in. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And we are going to, yet again, spoil the ending of this brand new reimagining of a book that is a few years old now that we already spoiled the ending of, like, six weeks ago. By the way, Rosebud's a sled. You're welcome. Jerk. Let's go ahead and jump in, shall we? Yes. So we start off with Moonrise Sweetness. It starts off with a little bit more meandering from Bast involving him ignoring a cat, which I'm honestly a little bit upset about. I knew you would be. Of course. You do not ignore a cat when it needs pets. In fact, actually, you have been scolded by a person on a Zoom call who heard Sokka yowling at your door. Yeah, he was like, is that a child? I'm like, no, it's my cat. And he goes, Will, you go pet that kitty right now. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I will. Our cat is spoiled. And then we get a little bit of a description of the Williams farm. This is a very expanded description. One of the things that Bast notices is that pretty much all of the farm parts, so like the barn, the fields, all of the general equipment are in states of disrepair. The fields are fallow. They obviously haven't been worked for quite some time, probably because Jessam spends most of his time out hunting and drinking and leaves everything else to his wife, Nettie. And then in contrast, the areas around the actual house, the dwelling, which include the animal pens for the three goats and then the garden where she's got some neat rows of carrots set up are actually in pretty good shape because that's what Nettie has the time and expertise to attend to in addition to all of the work of raising their children. There are three of them. One of them is still breastfeeding. So then we get our first meeting between Bast and Nettie. This has also been a little bit expanded. Just to reiterate from the last two episodes, we're mostly going to touch on what has been expanded rather than a direct retelling of the story. If you want the entire story and to know everything that happens in it, you should read the book. I think Nettie gets a little bit more filling out here. And we also learn a little bit more about how the village at large views Bast. They seem to view him as handsome but simple. I think they touched a little on that in the previous 
iteration of this, but I think it feels more shown and not just told. Yeah, like he's sort of the sweet but dumb himbo who comes around and everybody's generally happy to see him. We also get the sense, though, because we know about Bass's inner monologue, he is anything but simple. And I think this kind of speaks to the way that neurodivergent people are oftentimes flattened down into a simple version of who they are to just the outward expression of their various conditions. And inside, there's a lot more going on. Like we see Bast really struggling and trying to puzzle out ways to work with the way he views the world and how he adapts that to fit new stimuli and new information. I think Bast plays into other people's expectations and views of him to his own advantage sometimes. <laughs> Clearly, new mom, Nettie, not self-conscious at all. She's feeding her child. And Bast makes a show of looking at the baby, which also means he gets a peek at Nettie. <laughs> and they both know it and then carry on the conversation as though they don't. I kind of get the sense that compared to the original text, Bast's interaction with Nettie here feels a lot more like a seduction. Like you feel each of the steps along it and her responses to his various ploys. Eh, ploy isn't really the right word. Each line of dialogue, you can see him furthering that sort of seduction in ways that felt a little more abrupt in the lightning tree. I think they fell a little flatter because we didn't have as much of that playful flirtiness necessarily in the lightning tree. I think that the lightning tree itself, a lot of things are a lot more abrupt and a lot more lecherous because of it, because we don't get motivations in the shortened text where we've seen his motivations and how he is actually respectful of people. He's just that type of person where he is charming and it comes off very flirtatious. Whether on purpose or not is up to us to decide and I think that it is on purpose. And I think it's important to remember that he's also trying to make sure that Nettie understands that she is valued as a person and not just worthy of being an abuse victim. She has agency. She can choose how to respond to everything because throughout all of it, Bast's words can be taken in multiple ways and she can choose how to take those. And every interpretation is there is the ability to read it completely innocently. I'd also say that it goes along into playing up the idea that Bast is at the end of this interaction when he says he has something to show her. I think both the lightning tree and this are trying to do a misdirect of what his actual motivations are, which is to help Nettie capture the queen bee of the wild hive that he was told about earlier and make it almost seem like, and then the camera pans away and they go off and- Fade to black. Correct. That's what it feels like to me, is that this is trying to allude to something that isn't what actually happens. I think fundamentally, any one of those interpretations are open, and I think there's room to view it either way. We get a little more 
verbiage around the cheesecake that is best chopping wood, but I don't know that there's really anything worth focusing on in that. So I think we should probably get along to evening riddles. Like in the lightning tree, Bast returns from the farm limping slightly, and we meet Wilk and Pem. In the lightning tree, we would have already met Wilk once, and in this one, he has been replaced, and I can't remember by whom, but I think it does a good job of changing things out so that the world feels more expanded. Yeah, there are plenty of kids around Noir, it feels like. We get the exchange of a riddle for a favor. The riddle that Bast offers them is, show me something that has never been seen before and will never be seen again. And I came up with the answer to the riddle. Mm. This moment right now. That does seem like the type of riddle that Bast would provide. And also something that a 10-year-old might not grok. <laughs> So then Bess sends them out to Little Cliff for a glorified fetch quest. And continues with the, all right, go and get water from the waterfall and go find perfect acorns. I'm going to give you some honeycomb at the end. Like, this is not different. And then Bass takes another bath, this time to clean off from his travails out by the farm. And this is a more functional, less performative bath because there are no little birds to observe him. And also Emberly still has a soap. This also happened in the lightning tree. The only thing that I can think of that has been expanded in this is that Bast has now sprawled himself on a rock like a cat trying to get dry. Then we move to Sunset Lies. After the nap, Reich comes back. And this is where we actually get a little bit of a verse about the charm. And so I thought I'd read it to you because I think this is new. And it's kind of fun. So the charm is much more than just the parts. Most folk don't know it truly starts only when you understand your heart of hearts. A true charm puts down roots in your desire. When you decided what you wanted, that's where it began. You've gone and gathered pieces proper as you can. Now we put a pin through it so the whole thing sticks. Charms made any other way are not but silly tricks. I think what we're really seeing here is... This whole thing, the, the charm that he's making is kind of the placebo. It's the thing that he is giving to Reich to give to Nettie, but it isn't really actually where the magic is. It is basically a token. It is a thing so that Reich can feel protected. And fundamentally, I think the real magic is what happens to Reich and the way he views himself. We're going to come to that a little bit later here because I think it's really powerful and heartwarming. The thing that really gets hammered home here is Reich is really cognizant of the cycles of abuse and is determined to break it. This is definitely expanded from the original. I listened to it and the performance from Nick Podell, it's beautiful. Like the performance of the written word made me tear up. The way that Reich is twisted in knots, the way that he is so afraid his dad's blood being in him will cause him to be just like his dad. It's heartbreaking. And I wonder if that comes across in just reading it. I teared up at the same parts just reading it. So 
I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I thought that it was really evocative here where like in the lightning tree, Basque reassures him and then that's kind of the end of it. But I think here we see Reich a little more tormented. He knows that he has dark desires. He knows that he's got parts of himself that are ugly, that are things that he wishes weren't part of him. And I think he's also not so easily convinced with just a hug, even though the hug helps. We see Bast in the light of someone who is actually being a true friend to him at this point, looking at him with compassion, seeing someone who clearly wants to do the right thing, so tormented by this fear that he'll do the wrong. And it's one of the things that helps us identify good people versus bad people, both in fiction and in real life, is that truly good people think very carefully about what is good and they don't take it for granted that they have chosen the good thing. Like they don't take it for granted that their choices are good. And I think they're aware of who they are enough to know that they have to think about these things and they have to, you know, interrogate their motives in ways that a more flat character who comes across as just being self-righteous never would. So yeah, I think that's something that helps us to understand who Reich is. He does take who he is seriously. I like once Reich has shouted and sobbed himself out, that he's collapsed into Bast, he trusts Bast, and Bast just provides a comforting space to land. And it says, the storm passed and Reich stepped away, scrubbing roughly at his face with his sleeve. The illustration of this moment is beautiful. Again, I highly recommend just at least borrowing this book from the library. It's so much better than just listening to us describe it. Yeah, Nate Taylor's illustration on this is fantastic. Nick Bodell's audio performance, also fantastic in its own right. And Pat's written words, chef's kiss. There's a little expansion of just the physical marks that show that this kid has been hurt. Not so much that it's glorifying or focused too much on it, but enough where you can feel for the kid and it feels more grounded. We also get this really interesting kind of evocative description of Reich sitting underneath the moon where it almost looks like horns. And Bass kind of muses that he looks a bit like a demon. And in many ways, what Reich is fundamentally is someone who is dealing with demons, his own and those of his father and how to contend with all of that, how to exercise all of that. Really what we are looking at here is fundamentally almost an exorcism, the demon that plagues that family and that plagues Reich's soul. Because as we just discussed, Jessam isn't just an external force that Reich has to deal with. All of those parts of Jessam that Reich sees in himself are also a part of it. And those are something that he is actually probably more terrified of than Jessam himself. I know that when I see aspects of my abusers come out in either my personality or my reactions, 
disgust is really the feeling I feel. And I've worked so hard to not have those reactions or those attitudes or those behaviors. It's hard to get rid of an instinct. I think the most powerful part of this is that then the ritual ends with Bast ordering Reich to sit vigil with the charm. And this vigil is more about that meditative self-reflection that Reich hasn't really allowed himself to have, perhaps because he's afraid of what he'll find out, perhaps because he is thinking kind of in a solve one problem and then the next problem and the next problem mode. He doesn't want to slow down, but this part is important. I think it's that period of contemplation and understanding who he is is important, who he fears he is, all of that. Another part of this that has been expanded only goes to make vast dual nature as kind of caretaker or protector and wild creature more apparent, more in the forefront. When Bast is helping to make this charm, he starts acting more wild, more menacing. The laughter that spills from him is not necessarily mirth. He sees the moon above Reich's head in that way that makes it look like horns and sees Reich as demon-like. And he just can't help it. The moon is a trickster. The moon is almost sentient in these stories, but we don't know exactly what its symbolism is yet. What its significance really is yet. What we do know is that of all of the celestial bodies in Temerant, the moon is the one I think that is most present in the minds of our principal characters, both protagonists and antagonists. The moon is critical to understanding the Fey realm. It's critical to understanding the war between the namers and the shapers. It is a fundamental part of understanding Foth and Denna. So I think we should stick a pen in that because it's going to come back in a few chapters here. Our next little bit is like a sentence. It's twilight, carrots. It has its own little chapter, and it's essentially just, I think Pat didn't know where to put this, so it's its own thing. It really reminds me of Muppet Christmas Carol, where Rizzo is continually forgetting where his jelly beans were, and then he realizes he had them with him this whole time. Except Bass does not have his carrots. I would like to point out, one thing that we are not talking about is the embryos that are depicted in each of the titles. I don't particularly want to go too far into the mysticism or the symbolism of them. And also, I think that y'all should read it. Look at the pictures. Look at the illustrations. If you have any theories or thoughts about the Emeralds, about the illustrations, join us on our Discord. Talk to us about it. I'd love to have these conversations with more than just Will. No offense taken. More than just you, not instead of you. <laughs> so then we get to night demons. This will be a familiar scene for a lot of our Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear folks because it's back at the Waystone with the usual felling night crowd of Graham, Old Cobb, Jake, Smith's Prentice, etc. It mostly reads the same as the Lightning Tree, 
but there is less of a focus on Crazy Martin being kind of a white knight because he's helping Cobb instead of a lady from town. And we also get a little bit more that, yeah, you know, it's not just that he is dysregulated in how he responds to these sorts of instances. He does have some neurodivergences that I think are pretty relatable. He will go down a rabbit hole about any number of seemingly mundane things. And yeah, for people who have ADHD, such as myself, I think we all know what that's like, getting caught in a conversational rut, so to speak. Or taking someone along for a ride down a road they didn't want to go or didn't know that they wanted to go. It's the whole reason we have this podcast. <laughs> I'm glad you've wanted to go down the roads with me. Yes, I love them. I love it. It's delightful. I learn so much and I enjoy our conversations a lot. I think what we actually get here is that when Martin acts violently, it is with clarity, not madness. Like he can get caught in these weird ruts. He can kind of go off on his paranoid ravings. But when he sees someone being hurt, he acts with clear intent and purpose. So when he saw that the person who was supposedly a tinker had actually injured Cobb, had assaulted Cobb, he responds in kind. There is no hesitation to him, no madness to him. This is him acting with clarity of purpose and intent. He is someone who behaves with a clear compass. We also find out that Jessam isn't too well-liked. I think it is very important to point this out. He's not looked fondly upon. This isn't like the whole town agrees with Jessam and looks the other way at his behavior because he's viewed as important in the town or viewed as respected in the town or any of that stuff. And I don't think he'll be missed. In the lightning tree, there's a sense that the crowd of adults views him as just kind of a harmless crank who does his thing or whatever. And they don't necessarily much like him, but they give him a certain degree of regard. That here they recognize, yeah, he has a lot of seriously problematic behaviors and he is not a valued part of our community because he is a problem person when he is drunk and he is drunk quite often. And it isn't just that he terrorizes Nettie and the family. It's that he's a bad member of the wider community as well. And so there's less of a sense that they're more complicit in the way he treats the rest of the family. So like before, we get that Jessam has supposedly been into Martin still, and Martin knows this and is now gunning for him. It's made more clear that Martin is looking for repairs to his equipment and the link between Bast smelling like alcohol and the damage done to the still and Jessam falling down the waterfall. Like, the breadcrumbs are closer together. I think it's more clear that Bast probably framed Jessam for this. Yes. And we don't know exactly who did the beating of Jessam or who chased him. But Bast knuckles. Give us a pretty good clue. Though, he could have been injured getting the bees. Probably not that injured. I also wonder if Nettie was involved in this as well. How much does she know? Right. 
Bass does pipe up, this is different from the lightning tree. Jessam's not coming back. What do we think happened to make that apparent, to make that happen? Were there words exchanged? Were there threats? What is it that makes Bass so sure? And is it magic? How much of this apparent magic is actually magic? It has a little bit of, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there to it? I think some of it's true. Not all of it's literal. <laughs> so then we get to Midnight Lessons, and this is the part that really got me. I have a question. Mm. Was this in a different order in The Lightning Tree? This did not show up in The Lightning Tree. That's what I was wondering. Is Did any of the events in this show up before? Because it seems familiar. I think really what it's doing here is this is a debrief between Bast and Reich that really didn't happen beyond that sort of cathartic hug. Mm. But this is something that speaks to a deeper emotional and maybe even metaphysical bond between the two of them. And it also harkens back to the conversation around grammary and glamoury that we had with Costrel. And I think this is actually where the heart of the magic is. Magic and mystical, literal, psychological, maybe it's all the same. We start with Bast asking Reich who he thinks he is and who he wants to be. So Reich says, I'm a liar. I hate folks way too easy. I get angry all the time. I wish I had a demon in my shadow, but I don't. I wish I were just worthless, but I'm worse. It ain't like I'm good, and there's some of it that makes me bad. It's just me. I'm like my dad. And when asked who he wants to be, he says, I want to be the boy I was when it was just me and my ma. I don't want to feel like I feel anymore. I want to be the boy I was before. So we see Reich here speaking in rhymes just the way Bast had earlier. And there is that knowledge of these parts of himself that Reich really does not like. Here's where Bast basically comes in and says, hey, guess what? Part of our deal is that I own you. And he then says, I own all of those parts that you don't like and I am taking them from you. And he reminds Reich that what he's done doesn't define who he is. Reich isn't a liar. He's a boy who has lied. What do you think he lied about? We know that Reich has lied to Bast in the past. We don't know about what specifically, but that's what had led them to be at odds when the story began. He knows that Reich isn't a bad person. He's just a person who's done some bad things. And most importantly, he isn't worse than worthless. He's precious as the moon. You know, when I think about going to therapy and things like that, one of the things that I've had to work out of, one of my habits, is when I define myself, when I say I am a bad person because I've done blah, 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 or when I say I am a, and then put whatever noun you want on there, that becomes a limiter. I'm lazy. I'm unmotivated. I'm bad at this thing. Right. When I start making I am statements, those end up limiting my conception of who I am or who I can be. And they enable me to really 
focus on those parts of myself that I don't like. They force you into a negative thought pattern where you define yourself by your worst actions. And instead, it's much more helpful to remove those character judgments. So to say, I have done these things. You can't erase the fact that you've done things in your past, whether you want to or not. And so here, Bast is reminding Reich that he has done things, but those things don't define him. And they don't erase his intrinsic worth as a person. He is not worse than worthless. He is precious. If we're going to do any defining, any value definitions have to start with this, you are precious, you are valuable, you are good. And we see sort of a weight lifted off of Reich's shoulders. And this is where we get that call back to the conversation with Kostrel, where Grammary is not necessarily changing something by adding something that was never there or making it into something that it's not but rather transforming something by amplifying things that were already there and bringing those to the forefront and emphasizing them, like cream on icing on cake. Like Reich was already a decent kid. The person that he wanted to be was there within him all along. What Bast has done is exercised that demon and said, you know what? I think you're a value. I think that the things that you've done don't define you. I'm freeing you from those. I am saying that you are a person of worth and value, and all of these things are true, and you're going to believe that they're true. And that belief, it is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that I am of worth, that I am of value, that I can do wrong, but when I do wrong, it doesn't mean that I am wrong, that I don't have to just be who I was on my worst day, that my worst impulses define me. I think that's where the true magic here is. And I think this is the magic that Bast is actually weaving. One of the things that you and I both talked about a little earlier here that comes out of this is it involves sort of that circular motion, everything making a Wittershins turn and then a diesel turn around the tree, that sort of circular motion, which calls to mind the circle of the moon and the circle that it makes around the planet. Like even the circle that we've got of dawn through midday, through evening, through midnight, that revolution. The rotation, the spinning. We also discussed how this seems similar to the magic that Ari does in the slow regard of silent things. It seems very similar. I would say the language of this part of all of the Fey parts is so similar to the entire language of the slow regard of silent things. That tumble, that cadence. And I think that it's not accidental in any way. And it may actually have been influenced by Pat reading this story to his kids who love the slow regard of silent things so much. They may have given him at least encouragement and suggestion, who knows, to incorporate more of that into this story specifically. 
But regardless of where it came from, I think that it is a benefit to this story, a great addition to the original. I agree. The line between emotional and mystical is very thin. And I think it this one manages to walk that line just in the right side and it does it well. Gives Reich the closure that he needs. And it also gives Bast something deeper beyond just being sort of the trickster. The story ends much the same way. Bast talking about how he'd found out where Emberly takes her bath when talking to Kvothe. He has the conversation about falling out of the tree, and it just hammers home how he purposefully missed the rocks and the mud. And it has the same resolution of what's more, I heard that Nettie Williams caught the queen bee. And the best thing about this is the end illustration shows Nettie with her children, showing them how to collect the honey. And Reich, whose pants clearly are worse for wear, little too short, obviously worn knees, there's a little bee patch, much like Bast's little sheep patch, just covering that knee now. I think also this is a reminder that with Jessam gone, the family needs a new source of income, and Bast has helped to make sure that they have that in the form of these beehives. Nettie can now make candles, and they can also pollinate some of the local farms, and they have honey that they can sell as well. And that way she won't have to sell the things that make her happy, that bring her fulfillment that bring her joy in order to pay things like the levy. Because she's previously had to do that. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about the end note? Yes. Cool. So the first part is Pat doing, I think, a little bit of self-flagellation. Pat is a lifetime member of the self-beady uppie club. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that he internalizes each and every nasty comment that he sees or hears. And I think that it's incumbent upon all of us who love his work to stop doing that. I agree. So I would actually propose, in the way that Bast performed that bit of grammary on Reich, we as a community should probably do some of that for Pat. So I would like to remind Pat that you are not a lazy writer. You are someone who has missed a few deadlines. He is a person for whom deadlines shouldn't define him. They shouldn't be the definition of his living. Exactly. And you are not a procrastinator. You are someone who has chosen to value other pursuits over time, for good or ill. I feel very strongly that he has chosen his family, his boys, over his fans, which is, I think, a beautiful thing that he has chosen to do considering how ill-behaved a lot of his fans are, and also how just lovely each description of his boys has ever been that I've ever heard, that I've ever read, it is clear that he feels such love and joy in being a dad. He is someone who has chosen to delight in the work of raising his two children, which is no small amount of work. And he is clearly putting effort into making sure that they are raised in a loving fashion. So 
let's all take that moment to do a little bit of grammary and take that to heart. So I think if we want to talk about the cream on icing on cake, we need only listen to Pat talking about Oot and Cutie, right? Like the way he talks about them, he is clearly coming alive when he talks about seeing the people that his children are becoming and growing up into, seeing them express kindness and empathy and joy and wonder. You know, we get the sense here that maybe the fans that matter the most to Pat aren't us, and nor should they be us. They're his kids. Those are the people whose opinions truly matter to him right now, and that's as it should be. That is for the good, and he clearly wants to do right by them. Like, Pat Rothfuss doesn't owe any of us listeners here a god darn thing. His obligations lie with these children that he loves and cares for and raises. I'm going to let our listeners enjoy Pat's words more than try to condense his beautiful author's note, you should read it. You should also read the author's notes that he posted on his blog that aren't printed in this because he didn't feel like they served the purpose he wanted them to for this book, but they're still of value. So with that, let's get into our seven words. So I had the words from the book this time. So I've got a few options here. Tell me who you think you are. Tell me who you want to be. I like those. And then I've got, you are just a boy who lied. And then we have, so what did you learn today, Bast? And then the one that I actually chose was, you are as precious as the moon. I think that is a wonderful reminder for those times when we are feeling worse than worthless, when we're feeling like our flaws define us, when we feel like we're stuck in a rut when we think that things can't change. I think this is a good reminder. I think all of you need it too. I don't know when you'll need it, but there's going to be a time when you'll need it. So just remember that. Well, in that spirit, my seven words go pretty well. The self beady uppy club is permanently closed. It's something that the two of us have reminded ourselves and each other. We are both very aware of our flaws and we both have a tendency to berate ourselves for things that we should have done. In my case, some of those are things I should have done 10 years ago that keep popping up in my head and tormenting me. Sometimes it's something I should have done 10 minutes ago. And that, again, that torments me. <sighs> Making wrong decisions, saying something that I didn't intend to come across in a specific way, making choices, making messes of things, second guessing myself. But you look at me and you say, if I'm not allowed to beat myself up for things that I've done that are ultimately not that wrong in the grand scheme, then neither are you. Yeah, it's uh, hard to put into words just how important that is. Terrible for podcasts, I know. But yeah, I think it's something that we both have to remind ourselves of. And when we call it the self-beady-uppy club, it makes it a little easier to... See it for its ridiculousness? 
Yeah, and helps us to sort of refocus on what are we going to do now? Also, I leave it to every single one of you that is listening to this to figure out where compound words or hyphens exist so that that is seven words. And like Bass says, the question, what do we do now, is perhaps the most important question ever. What's done is done, and now fundamentally the question is, what do we do now? What is the thing that we do next? How do we move forward? We don't live in the past. We can't live in the past. We shouldn't live in the past. We have to live in the now. I think that that's a great place to stop for today. I think so too. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Next time we will be back to the wise man's fear. I don't know where we stopped. I think we were on our way to the Adem. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't know what chapters. I apologize greatly. But in the spirit of the doors have been shuttered on the self-beady yuppie club, I'm not going to be mad at myself for not having looked to see where we're going next. We'll figure it out. And with that, I would love to say thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've loved exploring. And also Nate Taylor for illustrating the damn thing. I gotta say, I think that the entire book publication with the illustrations and love and care that went into everything, it's such a beautiful experience, tangible object, story that is now going to live in my brain for as long as I'm around. I find the entirety of it to have been so worthwhile and so lovely. And I love that Pat made multiple stories where there's not just a bunch of conflict. I love that the climax of the story isn't about fighting. Yeah, it's really about that emotional element. Any of the conflict is happening mostly off page. Well, any of the physical conflict. But the real emotional heft is there in that conversation at the end there between Bast and Reich. The book really carries all of that through. And that vocal performance from Nick Bodell is also quite excellent. I'd say even if you've read The Lightning Tree, you should definitely pick this up. Especially if you've read The Lightning Tree. (laughs) Can't agree with you more. Well, if you'd like to talk to us more about this book or any other book, actually, just anything. If you'd like to talk to us, chat, share memes, see pictures of my dice advent calendar from the year. I don't know. It's up on our Discord. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, such as it is, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. We have a Patreon. Support us if you want to. Or not. We're not your boss. <laughs> and with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. This expanded reimagining of the bass-centric short story, The Lightning Tree, came out just a... Uh, this expanded re... <laughs>
I giggled. Oh no! Oh no! This expanded re- that.